Uh, before I went into ministry, uh, I did work with technology, but I worked in technology, particularly in the world of iron ore research. And part of my job involved testing iron ore pellets. And that's what iron ore pellets look like up there on the screen. I used to, to make those things and then test them. One of the things we would test the pellets for was how strong they were. So I'd use a machine like that one up there, and it would push and push against the pellets and measure the, how much force was being exerted and it would push and push until finally the pellet could handle it no more and it would crack or shatter under the pressure. Do you feel like this in the Christian life? Do you feel the pressure is building and building, pushing and pushing and you're worried you might crack? Are you worried the pressure of temptation could be too much? Do you feel the pressure to give up trusting in Jesus, the cultural or family pressure can feel like it's too much? Do you wonder whether you'll throw in the towel and give up following Jesus? If you're with us today and you're not a Christian, it's great that you're with us today. Have you ever wondered how people stick with Jesus, especially when life is tough? Why don't they just give up? As a church, we've been working our way through an ancient letter written to Christian believers in Thessalonica, a city in modern-day Greece. We call this letter to Thessalonians. Last week, we heard about lawlessness. Uh, That section painted a picture of life in the now and not yet Uh, The time when Jesus is risen and reigning, but he's not yet returned, we're waiting. And during this now and not yet time, the secret of lawlessness is at work, which leads some people to be deceived and have their hearts hardened. And last week we looked really briefly at those last few verses of chapter 2 because that's actually the main point. The whole thing about the man of lawlessness was about right expectations. So no matter what, believers can stand firm. Today, we're going to push deeper into how God strengthens his people. And it's a great part of the Bible for us to reflect on because I reckon we often feel fragile and weak. Uh, The first thing God is going to say to us today, the first thing Paul reminds us, is believers, we need to know who we are. Have a listen from verse 13. So we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we always, uh, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in Jesus. Uh, If you're trusting in Jesus, these two verses are a beautiful statement of who you are. Christian, you are loved by the Lord. Just allow yourself to sit with that thought for a moment. Jesus doesn't tolerate you. He loves you. Jesus didn't die in order to make himself start loving you. He died on a cross because he loves his people. As Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were sinners Christ died for us. Do you believe this? If you're trusting in Christ alone for salvation, if you are one of his people, 
Do you know the triune God loves you? Maybe you think I'm pulling your leg. It can feel that way, can't it? Because rightly, we spend a lot of time focusing on forgiveness and repentance from sin. And maybe you think, well, God, surely, no, he just... He just gets over, you know, it's, it's actually not really that he loves me. He just tolerates me. But this is a truth repeated in the Bible. 1 John 4.10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God loved us. Christian, who are you? You are loved by God. Now we need to hear this truth clearly, both Romans and 1 John reminds us, it is sinners whom God loves. His love is shown in how the Son atoned for our sins through his death on the cross, saying we are loved by the Lord. It cannot make us feel smug. It's not because, oh, God just can't help loving us. No, this says more about Jesus and his immense love, but there's no denying his love is directed to his people. If you are in Christ, his love is for you. And how do we know this? We'll have a look again at verse 13. How do we know this? Because he chose to save you. Because he chose to give you his spirit. Because he chose you to not just hear, but to believe the truth about Jesus. Now you might be wondering, how do I know I've received the spirit? How do I know if I've been sanctified by the Spirit? Sanctified is a big word there in verse 13. It means to be declared holy by receiving the Spirit. Well, in verse 13, the two things go together. The two things are how God saves, both being declared holy by the Spirit and two, by believing the truth. One of the ways you know you've received the Spirit and now you are one of God's holy and loved people, is you believe in Christ. You believe the truth of the gospel, that Jesus, who died for sins for your sin and rose from the grave, you believe that that is God's king. He is God's king. Knowing that you have received the Spirit doesn't come from navel-gazing. We don't think, oh, hang on, I got that tingly moment once when we were singing a song. That tingly moment isn't the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who opens hearts to receive the gospel. If you believe the truth, it's because God has lovingly poured the Spirit out on you. And just briefly, did you notice how salvation is the work of the triune God? So do you see that in verse 13? Salvation involves the love of the Lord Jesus, the choosing of God the Father, and the sealing in holiness of God the Spirit. It's a triune work of God. And the goal of God's salvation is eternity in the presence of Jesus. Verse 14, he called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sharing in the glory of Jesus means spending eternity with him. And remember, who is the him we get to spend eternity with? Believers are people loved by God. So this is the great hope, eternity, enjoying the love of the triune God. Christian, this is who you are. You're chosen by God. You're loved by Jesus, declared holy by the indwelling spirit. And this is an eternal reality. Now, that is who we are. We need to remember this because in this now and not yet time, we are under pressure and we need God's help to keep going with Jesus. And that's what Paul tells them to do. It's what he prays for also. Verse 15. So then 
So knowing who we are, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. So first up, verse 15, Paul tells them to stick with what they've heard from him. Remember last week we heard that there'd been some false information, some false teaching coming in. Well, they're being told, don't listen to that. Instead, hold fast to what the apostles have told you. Instead of getting led astray by people making up fear-inciting stories about the end of the world. It's the same for us. If we're going to be strong under pressure, we need to stick with God's truth. We need to be reading the Bible and we need to be discerning. Check what I say against the Bible. And do the same with anything you hear claiming to be from a Christian, whether it's a a YouTube video or a Christian book, check it against the Bible, against the, the teachings, the traditions passed on through the Bible. But even to do that, we need, verses 16 and 17, we need God's help to hold fast to what the Bible says. And that's what Paul goes on and prays for. He asks God to give eternal encouragement and good hope. Do you think of yourself as an optimist? Uh, Christians should somewhat be optimists, not optimists in ourselves, maybe not even optimistic about what things are going to end up like tomorrow, but optimists about the big picture of God's future. We know how history ends. Jesus will snuff out lawlessness like blowing out a candle. And believers will, 100% guaranteed, believers get to share eternally in the glory of Jesus. Over the last couple of weeks, there's been lots of talk about the women's soccer. There was that promise, wasn't there, held out by the Prime Minister. If the Matildas win the final, we would get to share in the glory if he could pull off negotiations with the various state uh, uh, premiers. If that would all happen, then we would get to share in the glory through a public holiday. The Matildas may have been playing their A game. They may have had the home ground advantage, but as it turns out, victory was far from sure. There's not going to be a public holiday, no sharing in their glory, because sadly they weren't as glorious as was hoped. But Jesus' glory is not like this. Believers, we know... We will share in his glory because he's already won the victory. The grand finals already be won through his death and resurrection, his ascension. The future is guaranteed. And Paul's prayer is believers would know this and we'd have eternal encouragement. And that from knowing this truth, we'd be strengthened in good deeds and words. If we know Jesus has and will win... No matter the pressure we're facing, we can have confidence to live for Jesus. In a culture that sometimes says Christians are on the wrong side of history, uh, you can feel the pressure to not speak about Jesus. We can feel pressure to not live the weird way Jesus says to live, to love our enemies and not cut them off and cut them out of our lives, to be generous rather than loving money and hoarding whatever we can for ourselves, 
to trust in God's future rather than allowing anxiety to settle in, to to care for the weak and the marginalised, to use our sexuality in the way God made us, we can feel pressure to not live this weird way Jesus calls us to live, to not speak for Jesus, to not live out every good deed and word. But Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen If sharing in his glory is our destiny in Christ, we are very much on the right side of history. And so we live for that future. We might be living in the now and not yet. The secret of lawlessness is always going to be at work amongst us, but we know who wins. But it can be hard, can't it? To keep that in our hearts and our heads when the pressure is high. And so we need God's strength to believe this. The culture outside, the doubts within, push against this truth. We need God's strength to do this. And that's why Paul prays for the believers in Thessalonica. It's not just good enough to tell them the truth. They need God's encouragement to supernaturally help them to remember this truth and to live in light of this truth. And that's the last thing in these verses we need to notice. Do you notice Paul tells them he's praying for them? He doesn't just pray, and that's the only thing he does. No, he tells them. I mean, yes, it's God who strengthens his people to stand firm and hold fast, but one of the things God uses is other Christians. How encouraging is it to hear that another Christian loves you enough to pray for you? That's why God's given us one another, isn't it? It's why we need church. We need the encouragement of other believers There is no promise from God to strengthen you apart from deep, loving fellowship with other believers through us, the church. We need one another. You need us. It's how God will strengthen us. And the astounding thing is, this partnership in the gospel goes both ways. We don't just need someone like Paul, an apostle or an elder. We don't just need the leaders in God's people to be praying for us. It goes both ways. Paul asks the church in Thessalonica to pray for him and his mission team. So verse 1, chapter 3 and verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of our Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. may not surprise you that the, you know, the everyday believers in Thessalonica needed Paul to be praying for them, but Paul, the apostle, also needs God's help and strength. He knows without God's help he is weak. He, he covets partnership with believers. We are not called to live for Jesus by ourselves, but together as the people of God. Now, have you ever thought, why do we ask people to pray for us? It's something we see in the Bible, it's something Christians do. Have you ever wondered why? The Bible never gives a hint that it's because God listens more closely when more people ask him for the same thing. God is not a politician. Prayer isn't God taking a poll and then doing whatever is most popular. No, when we pray, we ask God to do what we ask. We're not forcing or manipulating. God is God. We are his people. 
God answers our prayers, not because we twist his arm, not because he's afraid that if he doesn't, we're going to go and choose someone else, vote someone else in as God. No, God listens to and answers our prayers because of what we heard in verse 13, because he loves his people. And so praying for one another, whether that's Paul praying for the believers in Thessalonica, the Thessalonians praying for Paul, it's got to be a natural instinct for Christians. It flows from our deep love for one another. Why do we pray for one another? Because in the gospel, we are brought into the people of God. We love one another. We partner in the gospel together and we express this loving partnership in prayer to the God who loves us. And what does Paul ask them to pray for? What does he want on their hearts and their lips as they speak to God? He asks for prayer for the progress of the gospel, that it spreads rapidly, literally, that it'll run ahead. It's a, it's a picture of a race, maybe a marathon, that the gospel message will keep going one foot in front of the other, that people, Paul, his team, Christians all over the world, that will keep telling the next person and then the next person how good Jesus is. He prays for the progress of the gospel. And he prays the gospel will be honoured, that people will not reject the message about Jesus, but in God's kindness, they'll receive it just like the believers in Thessalonica did. That is Paul's number one focus as he asked for prayer, for the gospel to be heard and received with faith. And this is what we must be praying for too, isn't it? Because only God who can do this. Only God can give boldness to believers to open our mouths. Only God can open the ears and hearts of unbelievers. Only the Spirit of God can bring spiritually dead people to life in Jesus. And so just like the Thessalonians, this must be our prayer too. So first prayer is for the progress of the gospel. Secondly, Paul asks to be delivered from persecution. Did you notice that's not number one on his list? He's being smashed That's not his number one priority. Number one priority is the gospel keeps growing. But number two, he does ask to have persecution uh, diminished. We might think that Paul writes so often about persecution. That's just been his lot in life since coming to know Jesus. We might think, oh, maybe he's got used to it. Maybe he likes it, but he doesn't. It is right to ask God to remove suffering, to deliver from persecution. And as we pray for the the gospel to progress, for persecution and, and oppression to be diminished, we do it with confidence. We pray with confidence. And this can be a bit of a tension, can't it? Because prayer is asking God. It's not commanding him. But when we ask for things, we know that the God we are talking to loves us. And we know what God loves to do. He He loves to strengthen believers. He loves to save sinners. And so we can be confident when we ask God to do these things and we can rest in God because God will not be inconsistent with himself. Verse 3, But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Now, do you hear the two things? There are two things Paul is confident in. He's confident God will strengthen believers, protecting us from the evil one, from Satan and the secret of lawlessness. Uh, This confident prayer brings 
brings to mind the story of Job in the Old Testament. The point of the first few chapters of Job is God is in complete control. Yes, Satan prowls like a roaring lion, but he's a lion on a leash. God has the choke chain and God gives his believers full armour to protect us against the fiery darts of the evil one. The main thing Paul has confidence God will protect believers from is from the lies and deception of Satan, which we read about last week in chapter 2. Paul has confidence because God is in control and God gives good things to his, his children. Paul is confident because he knows God has chosen his people to be sanctified, to be holy, to be declared holy by the Spirit and to believe the truth. So that's the first thing Paul is confident in. God is faithful to strengthen believers. The second thing is that the Thessalonians will keep living for Jesus, that they'll do what Paul commanded. And he prays that God will keep doing this, that he'll keep their hearts filled by knowing God loves them and that Christ endured and persevered suffering for his people. As we feel pressure as Christians, Jesus knows what it's like. He also suffered, came under extreme pressure, whether it was Satan in the wilderness or the pressure that came as he got closer and closer and closer to the cross. Jesus experienced great suffering, but he did not crack under the pressure. And so we are called to rest in this truth. The Lord Jesus is faithful. Paul has confidence believers will continue to live for Jesus, not because of our own strength, but because of Christ's strength given by the Spirit. But it's hard, isn't it? It is actually really hard to rest in God. It's counterintuitive. We naturally think strength is something that comes from within that we need to do things to toughen us up, to grow some spiritual muscles, part of the hard work of resting in God is resisting the temptation to rely on ourselves. Part of the hard work of resting in God is resisting the temptation to rely on ourselves. God calls us to actively rest in him. Actively resting means bringing to mind God's love for us, what God has done for us in sending Jesus and pouring out his spirit. It means meditation on the example of Jesus and his perseverance and the love he shows through persevering for us and for our salvation. Brothers and sisters, we face all kinds of pressures. At times it feels like the pressure is just too much. Uh, The fear is we might crack. But take heart, God is faithful. In love, he will bring his people to share in the eternal glory of Jesus. And it's with this confidence, can I urge us to be praying? Praying that God would do what he's promised. Pray for each other. Let's be a church that labours in prayer for one another, for other Christians we know around the place. For other churches in our our town, in our region, in our presbytery, in our state, pray that God would give us strength under pressure. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Loving Father, help us know who we are. To be safe and secure knowing your love. To be safe 
and secure knowing that by your spirit we are your holy people. Lord, we ask you would strengthen us. Help us hold fast to your truth, to obey your commands, to be strong in every good deed and word. Help us to partner and persevere in prayer, to be a praying church because of our love for one another and our confidence in you. Loving Father, for those particularly feeling they are struggling to bear the pressures of life, may they find strength and support in knowing Christ's love, the work of the Spirit in them and the support in our gospel fellowship. For the eternal glory of Jesus we ask. Amen.